0: Good morning. It's a blessing to be here with all of you. I know that, uh, and and all those who are joining us online. We know that there are a lot of you that we can't see, but we feel you here with us. And we are moving on, wishing this pandemic was gone, and still finding ourselves being extra cautious here in this space. And I I thank you for being here to to encourage one another and to worship God together, and pray that we all. don't have to quarantine from our families and have a good Christmas. A couple pop quizzes on uh, lyrics of hymns this morning. I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I uh, I, don't, I don't know if I passed. I, I forgot a couple of those verses. <laughs> um, but it's been already a, a wonderfully powerful time of worship to read those hymns, to hear those songs, and to have the gospel in such economic and musical ways hit us. For those of you who are musical, you will... Probably be a little frustrated hearing that scripture read. Scripture pulls just short of the climax. We stop that reading just before Mary's big song, Mary's big celebration, her Magnificat, where she magnifies the Lord because of the way the Lord has magnified her. But sometimes we rush through the story and past Elizabeth too quickly. And this morning I want to slow down. Luke takes us into a private room with this woman, Elizabeth, and he holds us there for a moment. And I want to allow ourselves to be held there with her for a moment to consider what she's going through and move with her through the rest of the story. We know that she's the wife of of, uh, a priest, Zechariah, She herself is a descendant of Aaron, so she's touched people, Luke wants us to know, who have touched people, who have touched people, who have touched Moses. This is a part of a deep story, a deep, deep story. Her very name means God promises. She comes from a family that's sustained by the shape of God's promises, and she, just when she thought it was too late for her and for her story, she is five months pregnant. I'm, uh, I forgot my the the headphone, so I'm anxiously tethered to the pulpit uh, here, so I'm going to do a lot of shaking back and forth. But <laughs> according to her husband, um, this pregnancy is because of an encounter he had with God. But as we'll look at later, he's struck mute, so... She's got a lot of gaps in the story. He must have been miming and gesticulating and writing down and scribbling and trying to tell her about this encounter with an angel there in the temple. And so she's confident as she sits here that God has done something, something unexpected in her life, maybe hoped for. We'll think about that. But but here it is. It's done. And yet Luke says she has been hiding herself concealing herself, celebrating what God has done for her. But she's hiding herself in this room for these five months, and it is a mystery as to why. You run to the commentaries. Is it a cultural reason? Is it this? This is something private to Elizabeth's own self and her understanding of what's going on. And the language that's used for hiding it is the language of crypt, the tomb. She is here with life in her womb and she is hiding herself as one in a tomb. She celebrates this and we have to listen uh, not judge it with modern ears but feel with her. She says that somehow this life that's coming to life in her has removed her disgrace, this a shame, the sense that she by not being able to have children was was blocked off somehow uh, from participating fully In God's story and in her own story. And it's experienced as disgrace. And she says it's been lifted. But here she is. Knowing that God has worked in her. Knowing that God is bringing something to life in her. And hiding in the tomb. What does it mean for us? What does Luke want us to see in this? So we draw near. We wonder if we're in this story somewhere. Luke is, um, well let's back up. How do we get into this woman's private space anyway? Luke tells us right from the beginning of this account that he is aware that there are many other people who have sat down to tell the gospel. But he wants to make clear right from the beginning of his gospel that he's doing something different. He's telling a story. It's going to involve stories. But his primary concern is that what he's articulating to us is event. His events have been fulfilled among him. Apparently there's this community that's been created by these events. And this word now, somehow, he says, it has made them a servant of this word. They become servants of the word. And there are eyewitnesses, people who have seen these things, and they've handed it down. And he wants those who love God, us who draw near, who hear this story, to either be open to it and to receive it and to be drawn into it. Or if we're already people who trust it. To be certain about these things, the word that's used, that Tom's talked about this in earlier, servants, is is, uh, a word related to the word we get asphalt from. He wants us, these are concrete things, and he wants us to be able to put our feet down on them and know they're hard and know about them. He is talking about happenings, events. And so having established this, this, this uh, trajectory for his proclamation, then he moves into the story, and he doesn't start with once upon a time. He starts with in the days of King Herod of Judea. Herod has control, not of the people. Herod might have wanted Luke to call him king of the Jews. That's what, He's worked very hard to make himself that, but he doesn't call him that. But he does say he's wrangled control of this territory, and somehow the days are named for him. And you'd expect us then to begin in the palace. Start the story there. What are are Herod's people up to? What's Herod doing? How is Herod the Great feeling at this particular time as we zoom in in this story? But he doesn't. He zips right past that and zooms in on Zechariah and on Elizabeth, a man whose name means God remembers, a woman whose name means God promises. They are at work living out their lives blamelessly, righteously, he says, in relationship with God. And they're living their lives out not in the gaze of the king, but it says again and again in the text, before the Lord, before the Lord. We know from the way Luke says it that they have a sense, that they are in a story, that maybe the days are named for King Herod, but, but their life, its shape is before Yahweh, before And we learn quickly that we're not on palace time anymore. Maybe we're on temple time. We're trying to figure this out, but we notice that Luke keeps changing it. And so now we're all of a sudden in the time of the incense, a time when people are gathering together and praying. Zechariah is in the temple carrying out his priestly duties, praying on behalf of, of the nation and praying on behalf of himself. It's quite possible that Jeremiah, I mean, that Zechariah is sitting there praying at first, maybe for the people thinking about their condition, their place underneath Herod, the great promises that God had made of, of old, the sense that he and his people are languishing in, in, a, in an endless plight of battling and struggling with one another. Maybe he's thinking of Malachi, the prophecies of Malachi that say, oh, Israel, you're, you're, you've gotten confused. You have more than one story running in your life. Um, <laughs> Malachi in chapter 2 says that there would be a time when God speaks to Israel. He says, have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Maybe Malachi is praying for what, or Zechariah is praying for what Malachi promised a time when God would show up and fix this, unite people, restore them to right worship and relationship with God, and bring them into a space where they can love God freely and express their faithfulness to God more deeply. Maybe he's thinking about the promises to David. We heard them in Psalm 89. This unbelievable promise. Unilateral promise. If you read Psalm eighty-nine, or if you think about Second Samuel seven or or Jeremiah thirty-three, this idea that God had promised that He would not let everything fall apart. He would raise up someone after David, a scene in the light of David, and he would have a kingdom that would last forever. A story that wouldn't end. A story that would be about justice, about life, about full relationship with God. And God sees Israel struggle again and again there to be faithful to this story and to the promises of God and to what God is doing in the world and to have a mix of patience and participation. But God promises them, there's nothing you can do that will stop this. you at get Jeremiah 33. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts in this space that is waste, without man or beast, and in all the cities it shall again be ha- habitations of shepherds resting their flocks, Da, da 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 that's the wrong section. <laughs> in those days at the end of time, we'll spring up for David as he show execution. Alright, so here's what Jeremiah thirty three says. Jeremiah thirty-three says, referencing Psalm eighty nine and elsewhere, you see it in Psalm eighty nine that we had a call worship too. It says basically that in order to get God to stop. Fulfilling his promise and being faithful and for his loyal love to be determinative for Israel, you'd have to be able to separate the night from itself and the day from itself. You'd have to be God yourself and stop time and stop the planets to keep God's faithful love from restoring the house of Jacob, even out of its faithlessness. Maybe Zechariah is thinking about this. He's praying, knowing. That the nation is divided, knowing that the nation is in trouble, knowing that the story is in turmoil, knowing that human sin is a part of it and praying for it. And then all of a sudden, his prayers turn to himself. And I never did get a son, God. Can I have a child if this story is real? If you're doing this, if I can't see it, can I at least have a child who can be a part of it? If you're not going to do it this week or next week or next month. My son, be a part of it. Maybe. And there's a messenger of God. An angelos, an angel. And Zechariah is quite immediately afraid. And the angel says, uh, do not be afraid. God has heard your prayer. And here it is. Those two things coming together. The hope for future participation and personal participation in the story. The hope for overcoming the sins and the shortcomings and the plights that have caused the story to be incomplete and to seem to have stalled, languishing exile, and God promises a way out. And Zechariah, true to the name of Jacob, (laughs) comes out of his fear very quickly. And instead of celebrating this miraculous thing that's happened, just like Jacob, he tries to get this angel in a headlock and make him bless him. (laughs) He says, I want it in writing. How can I know that this is going to happen? Because I don't know if you've seen me. I don't know if you know my wife, but we're pretty old. It's a little late in our story for this. But I want to know what's going to happen. And instead of touching his hip and making him walk with a limp, he makes his tongue limp. He says, It's going to happen. What do you mean, tell you it's going to happen? The event is the happening. The event is the sign. Go home to your wife. Watch. Wait. Is it going to happen? So Luke wants us to look there and see there that in Elizabeth, this is happening. The sign that this is real. That what's happening is unfolding. And Elizabeth... You know, she's sitting there with this alive in her. Who knows how Zechariah told her about it coming home and gesticulating and mumbling and trying to write down what's happened? It's really quite absurd, the whole thing. And Elizabeth is sitting here pregnant. And we have a bird's eye view. She doesn't, she didn't meet the angel. She received a message about a message from a messenger. Representing another messenger who seems a little hopped up and a little mad and a little crazy and she's loved him all her life, she knows he doesn't lie so she trusts him, but goodness he can't talk, is he sick? Well, you know, but here she is, lo and behold she's pregnant but her emotions must be swinging like a heavy pendulum we can scarcely imagine how dangerous childbirth was in the ancient world Just imagine what what she might be thinking here. Has she miscarried before? How many times have early hopes been dashed? Was she even still praying and hoping for this? Or has this dream died long ago when Zechariah prayed? Was it really for her or was it just his own remaining desires? On the one hand, her experiences are shaped by the language that she has of the matriarchs, God working in the past. She talks like Rachel. She says that this, is, this has taken away my disgrace among the people. My shame, the ability that I can't have a story that will ever be complete. A story, be a part of something that will outlive me. She says that's been removed. Things are right on some sense. But then on the other hand, a lot of her language is the language of Hagar. In fact, most of it, most of the language that she reaches for as she's pulling back thinking about this situation from stories of the past is about the slave girl who maybe didn't even choose to be a part of this story. Finds herself pregnant and then is scorned for it and says this is the God who sees because God sees her crying next to a bush because she's got a son that she doesn't know if she'll be able to take care of. A story that's going in a direction she can't control. Something has happened to her and she doesn't know if it's good. She doesn't know if it will be a blessing. And she feels vulnerable. More vulnerable for having this child than before she did. It's this great ambivalence. So, but she knows that there is this is good news too. So what, what kind of things must she be thinking? So, So, uh, this is good news. Uh, This one's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to prepare Israel to return to the Lord. This is things that we've all hoped for. Good things, okay, but prophets. Prophets aren't always embraced by their people. Is this child going to have a hard life? Is he going to be in pain? I mean... Daniel Daniel the book of Daniel that there there Gabriel was there too what visions did he do oh he helped people see amazing visions visions where we we knew the truth that the kings of this world that were hurting and oppressing were really beasts and that finally humanity was going to win out there was going to be one who's an actual human being with God who's going to overcome this and move God's story forward so it's good news but then again they were beasts big beasts coming out of the ocean and clashing in a terrible battle is this going to be is this going to be my son's experience speaking of pain and the possibility of pain my body hurts is it well enough to carry him to term strong enough to survive delivery will he be a motherless child is he already in some ways a motherless child god picked his name out already told me i have to name him john The angel visited my husband, not me. He can't talk to me now. Do I matter to God? Will I matter to my son? Do I matter at all? Is it just my body God wants? Oh no, my body. I haven't felt him kick in some time. Is he okay? Is he still there? Yes, he's okay. He's okay. The gratitude flowing back in. What is the unknown she's facing? Is it the darkness of the tomb? Or is she in the womb of God's very life unfolding in the world? And I think we feel like Elizabeth sometimes. Stories seem so precarious and so fragile. Our world is full of them. We're born into them. Before we're old enough to realize that there are stories we can choose between, we're already dressed up and playing roles and affirming many of them. We're born into the stories of the nation. We mark its time. There's President's Day and Independence Day. There's Election Day, which nobody gets off because uh, nobody takes care of the right things in that story. Then there's uh, New Year's, and it comes. And if we stop to think about it, our first month is named for the Roman god of doorways every year. Roman god of thresholds of doorways, no joke. Every year we walk through the doorway of a god from a Roman empire, an empire long extinct. Maybe it still holds on. Maybe it's still with us. Maybe we are in the days of King Herod too. Or maybe we're on temple time. Here we are. It's Advent. It's Christmas. We're here on a Sunday. We faithfully come to church. Maybe maybe we're not even yet sure. Whether we're a part of this story or not, but we're gazing in and we come out of a, out of a certain respect for the religious story. We're not bad people. We're good pluralists, good humor, humanists. Tolerance is good. We all want to be tolerated, so we should tolerate other people. And we should tolerate life. You know, if things are too hot, you burn yourself. If things are too cold, they hurt your teeth. So just keep everything at room temperature. No arguments that way. Don't make, don't make trouble. No arguments. Each day has a to do list of its own. You've got to drop the kids off at first class o'clock, got to pick them up at last class o'clock. Life is, like we say, life is happening, whether we want it or not. Mid month is payday, death and taxes feed the God of mammon. It's always on the list every day. Death. Oh, we need to see the doctor. Fitbit just reminded me. Don't, don't like to do that. <laughs> I don't like to do that because blood pressure raises. Because every time we're in the doctor, the story of mortality raises its head, and we remember that we're vulnerable and we're in the hands of specialists, and we need help because we're not going to live forever. Who wants to do that? So maybe I'll put that off till next week. No one has time for stories. Stories are too draining trying to figure out which one is true. On the one hand, we don't have time for it, but you say that, and you see your friend's face when you say that, because your friend is a person of color who lives in a racialized country, and you know stories matter to this person because he's told you that uh, he lives in a story where people say his life is less valuable than your own. You realize that some stories are lies that kill. Stories aren't really fantasies, They're, they're real. And you think about your friend who's a woman and you know that she's a better preacher than you, smarter than you, probably more brilliant than you, and she didn't choose to become a minister and serve the church because some churches don't want her teaching there. You realize stories really matter. It's irresponsible to ignore stories. You want to repent of the dangerous ones, but you can't always tell what they are until you're really deep into them and you worry that it's too late. You look at the world full of stories and you can't stop. You feel afraid, afraid the lies will outlive you and harm your children. You used to hope your child would be like you, but maybe sometimes now you might be worried that your child is doomed to be like you. You, Yeah, right? (laughs) He's three years old. I'm already there. You know, you wonder if every story's made up, a big idol that you carry around. You feel tired. You think, is the Bible that kind of story? But then, and perhaps most importantly, you wonder, does anybody really share a story? That's the one that really hurts, right? I was an army brat growing up. We're all trapped in our own sort of consciousness, right? You go to a new place, you want to be liked really quickly, just keep your mouth shut. Listen, there's a story. There's a story in the school. There's a story in the church. They're a little different, but you can pick up the narrative real quick. And if you want everybody to like you, affirm their story. Affirm it with the way you talk. Affirm it with the way you walk. I always say, if God hadn't gotten a hold of me, maybe I could have been a con man. Because I can learn the story pretty quick. And in fact, staying in one community like this as long as I have, has been a a part of repentance. I've been here long enough not to be able to put the masks on anywhere anymore. But we do. We put those masks on and we think, you know, we're all maybe just faceless. Maybe intimacy is impossible because... The other pain of those things was leave, leaving those stories and realizing how much those stories went on, no problem without me. And there's pain in that too. Even though deep down you know everything shouldn't depend on you, you want to be missed. You want to matter. So, We have this litany of questions all the time, and we wonder, will we die alone? in Little incomplete stories. Maybe Nietzsche and Camus are right to call us out of these stories or recommend that we serve the most tyrannical form of stories of all, believing that the evolution of a better humanity is in our own hands and we just need to stop uh, serving our weakness and talking about our weakness and carrying around dead things and start to be, be the new kind of human being that we think others should be and to carry that forth and to move that story forward of our own weight. Or Camus says that the world is ultimately wordless. It has nothing to say to us. It forms us and it's also hostile to us. But if you face that and you're honest about that, then you're really doing something no other animal can do. Now you're doing human art. Now you're living human life. And that's courage and that's beauty. The thing both those men have in common, even though they're very different, is that they both believe that the real grace in the human story is to stop believing that sin is real. Sin is just a silly category. And the real freedom is not believing that sin is a problem. But we know that's not true. Because we've been hurt by stories and they were wrong. Not just wrong personally, they were wrong. And we have been a part of hurting other people. We have wanted to be a good husband, a good friend, a just human being, and we have felt that our desire is much bigger than our own body, and we have made promises to our own selves, just our own little selves in our own little life to take care of ourselves, and we've betrayed our own selves. We know sin is real. Don't even need to go into academic but, but I think in so many ways we're like Elizabeth. We, we want to know. Are we really a part of something? Is there a story we can trust? Is there a story that leads to life? Or are we trapped? Were we born into all this big mess that's ultimately closed off? And we get to do some cool things for a while, but that's it. Or... Are we in a place of life with God that leads from life to life to life to life, to love, to love, to love, to love, increasing with God as God's story goes forward? And so Luke wants us to lean in farther and we move forward with the story. I got to look at the time. I'm getting held up here. Yeah, I got to get moving because we got to get to this video. So let me rush through the rest of this, uh, this story here real quick because we don't want to miss this so Luke continues telling the story and it's really interesting he doesn't say now this is a new time we've moved from Herod we've moved uh, uh, to the temple we've moved to these priests and now we're moving somewhere else and doing something else but right from the beginning Luke says that this is in the sixth month sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so this is the sixth month. We're still measuring time by Elizabeth's fluttering life in her belly. We're still on, we're still in Elizabeth's story, but we've moved elsewhere. Can that be true? <laughs> Can God be continuing to tell Elizabeth's story here somewhere else? Can God be telling your story somewhere else? (laughs) Things he's doing elsewhere. Can what happened here, way back here, way back in this place that seems so historically remote from us, could this be our story? Luke wants us to lean in. Elizabeth can't see it. She doesn't know it. She's still hiding in that room. It moves forward. And we don't learn anything about this person. This person immediately doesn't have anything to, uh, to commend herself to us. She, we don't know what she's doing. We don't know where she's going. It's not even 100% clear that she's inside, but we think she is eventually. We learn that from the story. There's really nothing remarkable about this person. She lives in, uh, in uh, Nazareth, which um, you know, Luke's aware that most of his readers won't know where the heck that is, so he's got to, uh, got to give a little extra note and say that Nazareth is in Galilee. So she's in the sticks, and she's doing who knows what, and she is a young virgin. She's a woman who doesn't really, isn't labeled as being established in a household at all. She's between two households. She's being passed from one man to another man, one father to another father, from her father to Joseph's father, because if he's still alive, he's handling the arrangements of all this. And uh, she's going to be betrothed to a man. But this man we learn something about. This man is from the line of David. And we learn all of a sudden that this young woman's name is Mary, but Luke has options with how he wants to write that name in the Greek. And this is not just Maria, it's Miriam. So, right there, something starts to bubble up in the text. Miriam was, if you'll remember, also there with moses moses' sister, when Moses was sent down the river and sent away she 's the one who keeps the story of salvation moving by plucking him out and sending him secretly to back to his own mother <laughs> so that she can breastfeed moses she she uh, um, she um, is is right there and intimately a part of it she celebrates and worships the victory uh when when they're brought out of egypt and when the charioteers can no longer follow them so this is somebody who is moving and working but it's also Maryamne. it's very similar to Maryamne. Maryamne is this woman that herod married to try and make himself the king of the jews from the line of of kings who restored the temple back in the time of the Maccabees and and, uh, and they've worked on restoring the temple and and uh, so in some ways this is also is this the real liberative work of God here over against this pretender this king? It's, it's just filled with all this potential in these events and the line of David here it is, yes, yes remember the prayer the prayer that there would be one father one shared story that that God's faithful love would move things forward and bring a meaningful story. And this one speaks to Mary. This one says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Three things right there. It's a sort of rejoice. It's kind of like the way English people say cheers. You're right. It's, rejoice. It's happy. Celebration. Good news. Right. And you're blessed. And God is helping you. Maybe if there's anything, maybe maybe that's what some of us need to hear this morning, right? <laughs> Rejoice. God blesses you. God favors you. God is helping you. The Lord is helping you. And Mary, unlike Zechariah, she's not afraid of the angel. She is afraid and troubled at the word. It says, upon the word. Because nobody greets like this. Certainly not Her. So the story goes on and the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God not because but but she hasn't done anything she's not in the temple she's not doing anything who is she she's not even married to anyone she's going to be she's a young girl she's too young she's naive she hasn't what has she done to make God respond God's freedom. God chose her. God is doing something. Mary, you've found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. Oh my gosh, Mary is young, but she knows how the world works. She says, how, how is this going to happen? I'm I'm a virgin. I know, I know that people don't talk to me like this, so this is a weird word and you're talking about things that don't happen. And It's a different question, though, than Zechariah's. She doesn't want proof for her to know. She speaks about it as though it's going to happen. She wants to know how. But she's open to the happening. And so the angel tells her that... um, This one who will be great, the son of the most high, the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. This is a story that does not end in futility. This goes on forever. And uh, it is God's faithful love coming despite faithfulness. This is truly a story of complete grace. And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The Spirit will overshadow you. This is Exodus language. This is language from the end of Exodus, the climax of this whole story. The good news that God didn't just set free these Hebrew slaves so that they could wander the desert forever aimlessly, but God's own presence came. And dwelt among them, and led them by night, and led them by day. This is the leading, guiding presence of God present in the world, <laughs> and it's going to live right there in this young girl, and we're invited invited to look at it, see it, consider the fact that it might be our story, like it's Elizabeth's. And now the big question, how's Mary going to respond? And Mary picks up on something amazing. Mary does something amazing here. You've noticed this language twice in the text. The angel says, behold, behold. That's prophet language. That's what the prophets say when God's going to do something in the world. And if you want to know who God is, what he's up to, how how faithful he is, and where things are going, you behold and you look at that event. And Mary talks about herself like she's also the prophet. Not looking out there, but here. And she says, behold, look at me. I am a slave of the Lord. I'm a servant in the Lord's household. This one between two households... I think she's aware. She knows that this is going to be a scandal. This is going to mess up her marriage plans. This is going to mess everything up. Who's going to believe her? Elizabeth is hiding out because Elizabeth doesn't even think people are going to believe her. Just Behold, Mary's the first one to welcome the visitor. And he also tells her, And she also says, let it be according to me. Let it happen according to me. Let it happen to me according to your word, your promise. This echoes all the way back to creation. Mary is here connected to the word that created the world. The word that freed Israel. The word that promised to Abraham. The word that that fed Israel in the desert. The word that promise there would be a way out of exile, the word that has shaped and given (laughs) names to Zechariah because they've proved that God remembers again and again and given names to Elizabeth because this, this is the word that is the story of the whole world. And here it is happening in this one in Mary. And the angel gave her a sign. I've got to wrap this up here. Unlike Zechariah, who asked for and demanded the sign, the story ends with the angel going out of his way to give Mary a sign. And he says to her that her cousin, this is the first time we find out that she's related to Elizabeth, is six months pregnant. And wants her to know that this is so that she can see it and know that nothing is impossible for God. And specifically, this language of event, Things that happen And God's own speaking It's all in the language of word Rhema and Logos it's, There's this interplay there that doesn't come through In, in the English But but this, there is no word that's impossible for God And there's no word by God that isn't a deed Because God is a living, active person in presence and in relationship with us. And so what happens then? We look forward and remember this story. See the gravity of Mary. We already forgot about Elizabeth. And so, but but what happens with Elizabeth? Mary rises immediately. She goes into the hill country to a town in Judah and she enters the house of Zechariah and there she's greeted by Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, now I don't know if this means that she just heard with her ears Mary saying hello or if uh, if this is the greeting of Mary in the sense that Mary's greeting, Mary's explaining that this, uh, what, what this angel said to her. But either way, the, the baby inside of Elizabeth, this story that seems so fragile, so difficult to interpret, but yet is real and is there, is called forth. And this one who was filled with the Holy Spirit before birth this one who's there, who's supposed to be like Elijah and prepare people to return to and turn toward the Lord, to receive the Lord's way, the Lord's role, the the Lord's story, this one celebrates when Mary's voice hits his ears, when Mary and Jesus come into their house, when God, when Yahweh visits them, Yahweh saves, Yahweh's salvation, Right there, Jesus in the belly comes into her household. Whatever's happening in her is there too. And it celebrates, and Mary receives the testimony from John the Baptist. She can't even see John the Baptist. You have Mary who's saying, let it be according to me. Let it happen to me according to your word. Mary hasn't even seen Jesus yet. And she's on it. She's with it. (laughs) Elizabeth hasn't even seen John yet. But in this moment, she's connected and she celebrates and she moves away from living in a world of disgrace that God had to remove among men, uh, anthropoids, And she begins talking about what's happening among women because she believes that what's happening with her and what's happening with Mary is God. God is doing this. And she says, This one inside of Mary is her Lord, is the Messiah. Yahweh's salvation is present. Is a part of her story. It's connected to what's happening in her. And she cries out. The language she uses to cry out is the same exact language that Paul uses in Romans 8. when He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the child who begins to give us one father, one story, one hope. One promise. One story that is not a tomb, is never a tomb, and turns every single tomb in the world into a womb. A space where God can act, move, nourish, work, and give life. Maybe sometimes you have to see your story at work in other people. Maybe it's hard. We can't see everywhere, but maybe we have to lift our heads up and see how God works in other people to know that the story is real. Maybe we have to just be very conscious of what's happening inside of us and know that God is working there. But all of us here, God is kicking to life inside of you. You're pregnant with God's life. You are a part of a story that goes on forever. You cannot mess it up. Rejoice. You have found favor with the Lord. The Lord is with you. We can't screw this. We have to wait and watch. It leads through Jesus and through John, through the cross, into the resurrection, reconciles us to God, reconciles us to one another, but it's the story we're a part of. And blessed are you if you believe that there will be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to you from the Lord. It's an event. It's happening. And that is the real thing of faith. These amazing, mysterious words are the last things I leave you with from uh, Hebrews 11:1 through3. It's a mystery, I won't explain it. I don't even understand it fully. but this story makes me think I do when we're looking at a word and a promise that's made flesh and a word that created the world and a spirit that's active. Now faith, trust, is the and the language is always assurance of things hoped for but it's literally faith in some ways the, the substance the same word is used to talk about Jesus being, being the very essence of the father that when you look at Jesus you're actually seeing somehow what and who God is so somehow faith trust in this story is the substance of things hoped for because what we hope for is God's life trust what God is doing and that God is working in your story you're trusting God's life For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That word is at work in us. That word is bringing life in us. The spirit is overshadowing you. You are pregnant with the true story, the one that can be trusted the one that will outlive every lie and every wound and every pain. Can our imaginations welcome it, host it, trust in Yahweh's salvation over other stories, be shaped by it, transformed by it, and live into it. Let it be to us according to God's word. Amen. Amen.